Well, good morning. Um, some of you heard me say before that um, I was 28 years old when I first became a senior pastor at my first church. So I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I've been an associate pastor for less than a year. Um, I like to say the ink was barely dry on my seminary degree. Um, and I inherited four staff members, um, all of whom were older than me, two of whom were the um, um, age of my parents. Um, seminary had prepared me well in some areas in uh, knowledge of scripture and theology and things like that. Um, but there were other areas where I just had no idea what I was doing. And one of those areas was how to manage and lead an organization. Um, and so I ended up asking a guy, and I'll, I'll call him Steve, that's not his real name, and you'll see why in a minute, um, to coach me. Um, Steve was the CEO of a medium-sized construction building company in our community. He was a member of that congregation, and he served on that church's finance committee. Um, so Steve agreed to be my executive coach. And I learned a lot from Steve. I learned uh, about organizational leadership, about managing a staff, about executing a strategic plan, about building a culture within an organization. Um, but then one day I got a call from Steve's wife, Linda. Um, and Linda told me that Steve had come home and announced that he was no longer in love with her, that he was in love with one of his coworkers at work, and he wanted a divorce after nearly 20 years of marriage. And uh, maybe some of you have been in that kind of situation before. Um, and um, Linda and her two kids were devastated, as you can probably imagine. And so um, Linda called me to let me know what was happening. And so I called Steve to meet him for coffee. And as we met, he confirmed that um, he had moved in with his coworker, who's was no longer in love with his um, wife, and he was planning to file for divorce. And in tears, Steve told me that he felt terrible about what he, he was putting Linda and his kids through. Um, but he was still determined to pursue this new relationship. We often define repentance as feeling bad about something that we've done that we know is wrong. And I have no doubt that Steve felt genuine sorrow over what he was putting his wife and his kids through. He didn't want to hurt the people he cared about, but he was committed to a course of action that was going to cause that pain and continue causing that pain. See, in the Bible, repentance is more than feeling bad about something that we've done that we know is wrong. And so we're going to talk about true repentance today. And as you've been learning um, in Ezra, the, the book of Ezra tells a story about God's people returning from their exile back into the promised land. And Ezra tells this story as kind of an Book of Exodus, part two, a story that follows the same pattern that you find in the book of Exodus, when God's people came out of their slavery in Egypt and into the promised land the first time. Now they're coming out of their slavery in exile back into the promised land after 70 years of exile. And you've already studied about how these exiles were able to get things running again, to get the temple running again, to get the sacrifices and the priesthood so they could create a rhythm of worship for these returning exiles. All of the outside structures of faith and worship 
have been restored by the eighth chapter of the book of Ezra. But internally, something is still wrong that needs attention. And that's what chapters 9 and 10 are about. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and read Ezra 10, verses 1 through 17. I'm not going to have you stand because it's a really long passage. And um, I'll do what my Hebrew professor in seminary said. And when I get to those impossible Hebrew names, he said, just say it with authority. Um, No one really, it's a dead language. No one really knows how to pronounce those names anyway. So Um, so Ezra chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. says, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God and send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commandments of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoanan, son of Elishib. See what I'm saying there about those names? While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded in a loud voice. You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly and let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman set a set time, come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter has turned to us. Only Jonathan, son of Asiel, and Jehaziah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbathai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as proposed. 
Ezra the priest selected men who were the family heads, one from each family by division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases, and by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Can I sign up for another week to teach? Hey, there's a lot in this chapter that's confusing to us and even troubling to us as modern readers. And this passage has been misinterpreted and misapplied at times to claim that the Bible is against interracial marriage. And I know Andrea um, addressed this a little bit last week, but let me state as clearly as I can. This passage is not a prohibition against interracial marriage. That is not what's happening in this text. Now, it's true that back in Deuteronomy, God's people were not allowed to marry the women or the the people. God's people were not allowed to marry the people who were already living in the land of Canaan. But the reason was not racial or ethnic differences. The reason had to do with religious differences. You see, the religious practices of the people who lived in the land of Canaan were incompatible with the religious practices and spiritual practice that God had given his people, the people of Israel. The people of Canaan, many of them worshipped different gods. Israel worshipped one God alone. Uh, Canaanite religious practices often included uh, human sacrifice, even child sacrifice at times, goddess worship, fertility cults. And when God's people entered into the promised land, God warned them against adopting these practices that were already practiced by many of the peoples who lived there. And marriage could lead someone to combining their religious practices with the person that they marry. And that's why God told them, at least for the first few generations, they should avoid intermarrying with the people who are already living there. But to press this point even further, there are lots of positive examples of interracial marriage throughout the Bible. And God blesses these marriages um, as long as both partners are aligned in a shared commitment to God. For example, in the book of Exodus, Moses married a person outside of Israel, a Midianite woman named Zipporah. And Moses's sister was outraged at this. Miriam was outraged at him for marrying Zipporah. And God told Miriam, Moses's sister, in very dramatic terms that God approved of and blessed Moses' marriage to this Midianite woman. Jacob's son, Joseph, married an Egyptian named Asenath. Boaz married a Midianite named Ruth. And Bathsheba was married to a Hittite soldier named Uriah. So interracial marriage is not only permitted in the Bible, but it was celebrated as long as both partners shared a common faith commitment. And that's the issue. Now, why is, are these marriages such a big deal here in Ezra? And this is where the book of Malachi can help fill in the gaps. Malachi is one of three prophets, along with Haggai and Zechariah, those three post-exilic prophets, who ministered during the period that you're studying in Ezra and Nehemiah. And Malachi fills in a detail about what's happening here in this chapter that's not quite as obvious from the text in Ezra. According to Malachi, the men who were in these marriages were leaders, priests, Levites, temple workers, leaders among the people 
who had first unlawfully divorced their wives in order to enter in to these marriages. Sorry, I'm having issues with my uh, podium. Listen to what Malachi says to these men in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. It says, the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. That's Malachi 2.14. And then in Malachi 2.16, Malachi says to the very men that are being addressed here in, in Ezra 10, the man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should be protecting. You see, Ezra 9 and 10 are addressing spiritual leaders within the people of God who had divorced their wives for no legitimate reason other than they wanted to marry younger women who were indigenous and already living within the land. Not all that different than what my executive coach, Steve, was doing years ago. Now, the key word in Ezra 10, verses 1 through 17, is the word unfaithful. In verse 2, Shechaniah says to Ezra, you have been unfaithful to our God. Then in verse 6, Ezra continues to grieve over the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. And finally, in verse 10, when Ezra tells the people, you have been unfaithful, that word occurs three times in this section. And this unfaithfulness was not merely their unfaithfulness to their marriage covenant. It was unfaithfulness to their covenant promises to God as members of God's covenant community, the people of Israel. See, just like their ancestors, whose sins led to Israel's exile in the first place, 70 years earlier, these leaders were breaking their covenant promises to God. Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann reminds us that it was King Solomon's marriage to women who worshipped other gods outside of Israel that eventually led Solomon into worshipping other gods, which eventually led to the division of the kingdom into the southern and the northern kingdom, which eventually led to the exile in the first place. And so both here in Ezra 10... And in Malachi, these men are urged to go back to their wives. It's what I urged Steve to do as we met for coffee. That it wasn't too late for him to at least try to work on his marriage and to reconcile to Linda. In verse 13 of our text, when Ezra says to send these women away, the the Hebrew phrase he uses is not the usual phrase in Hebrew for divorce. Because Ezra views these unions between these these, uh, men in this passage not as marriages, that they're still bound to the wives of their youth. And so the issue in Ezra chapters 9 and 10 is that members of the people of God have broken their covenant promises to God, putting the entire community of exiles at risk of yet another exile. So what do we learn from this? I I think we learn six principles about what true repentance looks like. 
Um, but let's start by defining what repentance is. As I said, in the English language, we tend to define repentance as feeling sorry for something that we've done that we know to be wrong. Um, when someone is caught doing something bad, we expect them to show contrition, maybe cry a little, maybe um, show some kind of remorse. I used to make my boys write a note of apology that had six different points that had to be made in their point of apology, which was including feeling sorry for what they'd done. Um, In English, the word repent is primarily a feeling word, but that's not the kind of word it is in the Bible. The Hebrew word for repent occurs about 55 times in the Old Testament. The Greek word occurs about 22 times in the New Testament. And in both Greek and Hebrew, the word repent does not focus on emotions. It focuses on the direction that you're going in life. It's a direction word. Someone who repents was on one path that was a bad path. And when they repent, they change to a different path, a better path. The dictionary of the Reformed tradition defines repentance this way. Repentance is the willful turning away from sin and toward Jesus in true sorrow and humility. True repentance is more than feeling remorse. It involves a change of mind, heart, direction. It's a direction word. See, for Steve, repentance called for more than him feeling bad about the impact of his actions on those he cared about. It's a sorrow that leads to a humility that leads to a change in direction. So what do we learn about true repentance? Six principles from um, Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. Here's the first one. True repentance often starts with our leaders. True repentance often starts with our leaders. As a priest, Ezra was a spiritual leader for this group of exiles, and repentance starts with him first. First in the prayer of confession that uh, Andrea talked about last week in chapter 9, and then with his outward expressions of repentance here in chapter 10. Notice the verbs in verse 1, praying, confessing, weeping, throwing himself on the floor before God. These are actions that are expressing repentance. And Ezra isn't even guilty of the sin he's repenting for, right? So we often see this in the Bible, that God's people see themselves as so bound together in covenant promises with each other and before God, that they see themselves as complicit for the sins of other people within the community, and also complicit for the sins committed by their ancestors. Bible scholars call this a collectivist way of looking at life. And that's the primary way that we find in both the Old and New Testament. And for those of us that live not in a collectivist culture, but in a highly individualistic culture, this is hard for us to get sometimes. It's a very different way of looking at life. And so Ezra repents as part of the community, as a spiritual leader, to begin this process of repentance, even though he himself is not guilty of the sin that he's repenting of. Here's a second principle. True repentance is rooted in hope. True repentance is rooted in hope. Ezra doesn't seem to see much hope in his prayer and his actions. If you read that that confession in chapter 9, 
There's no petition. He doesn't ask God to do anything. It's pure confession. It's Shechaniah in chapter 10, verse 2, that says, but despite this, there is still hope for Israel. I always want to be more like Shechaniah in this passage. To always look for the hope. We really don't know much about Shechaniah other than he seems like he's a leader within the people of Israel. And he comes up with a plan, a plan that's based on hope, based on his knowledge that God is a forgiving God, full of compassion, abounding in unfailing love. When I met with Steve, I had hope for him. I had hoped that he and Linda could find their way back to each other. And I suggested giving it time, breaking off this relationship with this, this new person and even a separation from Linda so they could, they could begin to, to work on their marriage and see if there was a way that they could find their way back to what brought them together in the first place. I had hope. Romans 2, 4 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. If we have no hope, there's only despair, and therefore there will be no repentance. Third principle, true repentance calls us back to our covenant promises. True repentance calls us back to our covenant promises. So what Shechaniah suggests in verse 3 is not a new covenant. It's a renewal of their already existing covenant promises with God. When I sat down with Steve and then a little later when when some of our elders at that church sat down with Steve a few months later, that's what we were calling Steve back to. Steve had been raised in a Christian home. He'd been baptized. He was a member of the people of God. He was bound to God and bound to our congregation by covenant promises that he had made. And so we tried as best as we could to call him back to those promises to call him back to his promises that he had made to God and made to the congregation. You know, covenant renewal, renewal of our covenant promises is a common theme in the Bible. You read about it throughout the Old Testament. We renew our covenant promises whenever we have a baptism here at Glenkirk or whenever we celebrate communion. It's like a covenant renewal time where we renew our promises to God. Fourth principle, true repentance is both public and private. It's both public and private. Notice in verse 1, Ezra's expression of repentance are public in front of a large crowd of Israelites. But then in verse 6, he withdraws from public view, fasting and mourning over the unfaithfulness of God's people. Ezra was not repenting for show to impress people or to make a statement He was genuine in his repentance and his desire to see the people of God change the direction that they were on, which could lead to exile all over again and get back on the right path with God. When Steve announced that he was divorcing Linda, as pastors and elders, we realized that we had failed Steve as well. We sought God in repentance for the ways that we had not been more a part of Steve's life to know that he was struggling in these areas and to be more involved in his life to help him um, with um, the decline in his marriage and as he struggled with temptation. 
there's enough repentance to go around for everyone. Repentance is both public and private. Fifth principle, true repentance keeps us in community with God's people. Repentance keeps us in community with the people of God. Repentance cannot be forced or coerced. We can't manipulate people into making good decisions as much as parents as we try to when our kids are young. And even if we could, they wouldn't be good decisions. They would be manipulated decisions. When churches try to do this, they end up becoming the morality police, like you find in places like Iran. People are going to do what they're going to do. And God gives people the freedom to do what they're going to do. And so these exiles are given a choice. They're at a crossroads. The choice to break off these relationships and return to the wives of their youth the wives that they had discarded for no legitimate reason, and thereby remain within the covenant community of God's people, or the choice to remain in these new relationships and sever their ties with God's covenant community. And that may sound harsh to us, but again, these leaders were at a crossroads, and this entire community is at a crossroads of either return to exile or get back on the right track. Those who severed themselves from God's people chose a path that would eventually lead to a new group of people that we encounter in the New Testament called the Samaritans. The Samaritans were descendants of the people of Israel who had intermarried with people outside of Israel and adopted the religious practices of those other people and combined them with the religious practices of Israel that led to the emergence of a new religion. They had, the, they had a different Bible. They had a different temple. They had a different place of worship. They combined Canaanite religious practices with Hebrew religious practices And out of that emerged an entirely different religion. See, true repentance keeps us in community with God's people. When Steve refused to cut off this relationship and to at least try to work on his marriage, I asked him to step off of his role on the church's finance committee. He was shocked that I would ask him to do that. But the path that he was choosing was putting him more and more out of community with our congregation. It's not that we kicked him out or shamed him or shunned him or made an announcement to everybody avoid Steve, but his actions were separating himself from the community of faith that he had bound bound himself to in community. And then six, the final principle, true repentance sometimes takes time. True repentance sometimes takes time. Notice that Ezra and Shechaniah decide to give the people time. As verse 13 says, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two. So you end up taking, if you do all the math, about three months to resolve this issue. 
Some people didn't like this idea. There are four in particular, and we really don't know whether these four people who didn't like the plan thought it was too long or too short. Maybe two of them thought it was too long and two of them thought it was too short. But Ezra and Shechaniah gave the people time because repentance sometimes takes time. The elders at that first church I was at gave Steve six months. And after that six months, Steve was still pursuing this new relationship. They made the decision to remove Steve's name as a member of that congregation. Maybe it should have been three months. Maybe it should have been nine months or a year. True repentance sometimes takes time. And we need to give people the time for it. So repentance is more than feeling bad for something we've done that we know is wrong. True repentance is a change in direction where we renew our commitment to our covenant promises to God. It often starts with our leaders. It's rooted in hope. It calls us back to our covenant promises to God. It's both public and private. It keeps us in community with God's people. And it sometimes takes time. Steve did end up divorcing Linda. And Linda had every right, morally, biblically, personally, to move on with her life. Um, As a pastor, I've made that clear to Linda. But Linda decided to give it a little time before she moved on. Steve moved away to a new city, new job. And after a while, I didn't hear much from Linda anymore. About nine years after all this, I reached out to Steve. I had heard a rumor that he and Linda were back together. And when I called him, he confirmed that they were. In fact, they had gotten married again. And so I asked Steve for input on how I acted in his life as a pastor, for how the elders were. And uh, Steve told me that when um, we first met with, when I first met with him, he was too self-deceived to even consider anything that I was saying. He told me that my words to him felt harsh that he thought that our elders had moved too quickly to remove him from his leadership role in the church and eventually as a member of the church. He said it all felt very heavy-handed. He told me that nine months into this new relationship, things were not going well, and he realized he'd made a terrible mistake. Um, And as his mistake not only devastated Linda and their kids, but it injured this new girlfriend as well. And after that relationship ended, he went back to Linda, repentant. And they began a long journey towards healing that included years of counseling and joining another congregation. And as we talked, I apologized for coming across as harsh and told him that maybe we should have taken things a little slower. And he laughed and said it probably wouldn't have made any difference. Steve and Linda are in their 70s now. I'm still in touch with them. Still married retired, moved out of state. Now, not every story ends like theirs. In fact, not even most stories end like that one. Linda made a choice, a choice that was hers to make, and she could have made other choices as well. But Steve's story is just one example of what genuine repentance can look like. We all sin as people. Many of our sins are not quite as hurtful and destructive as Steve's was, but some of them are. 
And because we all sin, we all need repentance. This is why the church sets aside seasons in its calendar for confession and repentance. Ash Wednesday, Good Friday. In the church calendar are seasons where the people of God are invited to look at their own lives, to confess their sins, to repent. This is why when we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, we often confess our sins and express repentance to prepare ourselves to receive the bread and the cup. Been reading a lot of Dietrich Bonhoeffer lately in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, and he makes a distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. And one of the things he says is that cheap grace is forgiveness without repentance. Costly grace, biblical grace, is forgiveness with repentance. We all need to live lives of confession and repentance if we're going to continue to grow into the fullness and the measure and the stature of Jesus become more and more spiritually mature. When was the last time you expressed repentance? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this difficult text. And thank you, God, that you never force us or coerce us. That we know it's your spirit moving when we feel invited, but not compelled when we feel drawn, but not forced. And Lord, we all have things in our lives that we need to turn from. We all sin against you and against each other, against the people we care about and the people that we barely know. Lord, we all need to be led by your kindness to repentance, that we might continue to grow closer to you and learn to love better. So, Father, as these women go to their small groups, Lord, continue to lead and guide them in this text. May we hear the voice of your Spirit leading and guiding us closer and closer to your holiness and your heart of love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.